It's an honor to be here. I mean, I tell you, I was, again, having been a pastor for 25 years, you don't surrender the pulpit that easily and freely uh, to people you don't trust. And so, um, I, James, I really, it's an honor and a joy to be here with you this morning. I've got to love, know, and appreciate your pastor over the last two years since I've been with the convention. We've even played golf together. You learn a lot about a man playing golf with them, okay? <laughs> And I've known Rick and Pam since we hired Adam and Julie as our worship pastor down in Corpus Christi some time ago. And never saw this new role coming with the convention. I thought that I was going to be in Corpus Christi. Not only had I been there for 12 years, I thought I was going to be there another 12 years and God had a different plan. And so again, I come to you as representing the Southern Baptist of Texas Convention, the over 2,700 churches. I oversee a team called the Church Health and Leadership Team, where our goal, our, our mission is really to resource and network church leaders to be healthy. And if there's ever a time to where we need churches and leaders to be healthy, it is such a time as this. And so that's our role even now. Again, I, I've had the privilege of serving as an interim pastor on two different occasions over the last two years, and just so happened that I ended up an interim pastorate last Sunday, getting ready to start another one this Sunday. So this worked out perfectly according to my schedule. It's been a joy to be here. I understand that Pastor James is finishing up a sermon out of 1 Peter. And when I preached through 1 Peter some time ago down in Corpus, the title of the series was Living in a Stable Economy. Living in a Stable Economy. It had to do with the economy of the kingdom of heaven. When we think of economy, typically we think of the financial realm. How's the economy? But the word economy actually comes from the Greek word oikonomia. Oikonomia, which means household management. And if you remember, the Apostle Paul, was, I mean, the Apostle Peter through that letter is showing these persecuted Christ followers of what they have in Christ, even though everything was stripped away. I mean, the theme really of 1 Peter is enduring through suffering. And they had lost everything materially, and Peter's reminding them of what they have in the spiritual realm. But he's reminding them that they live in a new economy, a new economy, a stable economy, the household of faith. Did you know Peter compares the church, a word that he never used in that letter, he referred to the church as a family. And I love the sense of Calvary Hill and Mesquite, just the sense of family that you have, and I encourage you to maintain that, to continue to pray for that. But he talks about the church being a spiritual house. He says it's God's household. So now they're a part of a new economy, a stable economy, and through the, throughout this series, through Peter, I hope that you understand you live in a, whatever is going on in our country, whatever is going on in our world, whatever is going on in the stock market, that you understand that you as a Christ follower live in a stable household management, and that's the kingdom of heaven. I'd like to piggyback on that idea, hopefully, as we see ourselves at the end of this COVID season, prayerfully, hopefully, even though I just read a, a report a few weeks ago that they're expecting another surge this fall and winter. Anyway, I'm sure that you, like many other, and we've heard this repeatedly, even when I, back in March of 2020, I think when COVID started, there was a sense of, are we ever going to get back to normal? Whatever normal was or what that looked like. And as, as if getting back to normal was going to normalize the church of Jesus Christ to her mission and make us more of a church. Did you, ever, did you get that feeling? Hey, when are we going to get back to really being a church again instead of just watching things online. 
But this morning, I want to remind us of a truth that sometimes we tend to forget, and that the people are the church. God's family, God's household, not a building. Again, I'm not discounting our gathering together. The Bible is clear on that, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of sons. So I, some, as I don't diminish a gathering together, but I do think there's a tendency, hear me, to put too much stock into a building as well as the paid professionals, our, quote, ministers. And I'd like to use as my text this morning, 2 Chronicles 29. So if you'll take your Bibles and turn to the 29th chapter of 2 Chronicles, I'd like to challenge the assumption of people putting too much stock in a building, in a, again, those who are the paid professionals to be ministers. 2 Chronicles chapter 29. By way of introduction, we're going to read verses 1 through 11. And I hope I don't push this top part of this platform right off the end of the... <laughs> I'm not going to try to put too much weight on that. Second Chronicles chapter 29, beginning in verse 1. You can either follow along in your Bible or on your device. I think we have the text on the screen, but let's all stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Second Chronicles 29, beginning in verse 1. Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the Lord's sight, just as his ancestor David had done. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the Lord's temple and repaired them. Then he brought in the priests and Levites and gathered them in the eastern public square. He said to them, Hear me, Levites, consecrate yourselves now and consecrate the temple of the Lord, the God of your ancestors. Remove everything impure from the holy place. For our fathers were unfaithful and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord our God. They abandoned him. They turned their faces away from the Lord's dwelling place and turned their backs on him. They also closed the doors of the portico, extinguished the lamps, did not burn incense, and did not offer burnt offerings in the holy place of the God of Israel. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord was on Judah and Jerusalem, and he made them an object of terror, horror, and mockery, as you see with your own eyes." Our fathers fell by the sword, sword, and our sons, our daughters, and our wives are in captivity because of this. It is my heart, is it my heart now to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, so that his burning anger may turn away from us. My sons, don't be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand in his presence, to serve him, and to be his ministers and burners of incense. Let's pray together. God, I pray in the next few moments that you would stir our hearts to understand how you have wired us, how you have created us, and for what purpose you have redeemed us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody agreed and said? Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Just want to remind us of the context of that. You remember when Solomon, the king, passed away, there was a civil war, the splitting of the two kingdoms. You had Israel, the ten tribes to the north. They again, pulled away, settled up near the area of Dan, and had as their capital Samaria. You had the two tribes to the south. They were actually called Judah, and their capital was Jerusalem. And in the time of Judah, during the season of the kings, and you go read this in the Kings and Chronicles, you'll see this ebb and flow of leadership, righteous leadership, and then ungodly leadership. About this time, a righteous king comes along, in Jerusalem to lead Judah, and his name was Hezekiah. 
And you know, the temple that Solomon built in Jerusalem some 3,000 years ago, and a couple of centuries before this story at which we are looking, was the center of religious activity for the Jews. This is where, if you remember this, that every Jewish male was required three times a year to come to Jerusalem for the three major festivals. So the temple was this place of religious activity. You can go read in 1 Kings 6 sometimes just the awe and the beauty of the temple that Solomon built. But the temple was a visible place of the invisible presence of God, even though Solomon knew that God couldn't be confined to this temple or this place. The temple was a place of worship and of sacrifice. Remember that. The temple was a place of worship and of sacrifice. So... At this point in Judah's history, the temple had been, as we read just a few minutes ago, had become neglected due to the apathy, the carelessness of the Jews and also of the kings and the priests. By by the time Hezekiah came to rule in Jerusalem, the temple was virtually in disarray and not even being used. Can you imagine that? I mean, the beauty, the awe of this temple... Again, the requirement of every Jewish male to attend three times a year. The place of worship and sacrifice was shut down and in total disarray, as the author used a few minutes ago, the word filth in the holy place. And because of their sin and neglect, look at what Hezekiah says, the people of God have become because of their neglect. Look at verse 8. Therefore the wrath of the Lord came on Judah and Jerusalem, and He, God, made His people an object of terror, horror, and mockery as you see with your own eyes. And so this temple being in disarray, their neglect of the temple, they had this reputation among other people in that area of the country. Eugene Peterson in the message, he paraphrases this passage like this. He says, God's people have become a public exhibit of disaster, a moral history lesson. And I'm afraid that the church of Jesus Christ may be in that condition even now. Maybe on the verge of becoming an object of horror or a public exhibit of disaster. Why is that? Because we're generally not living according to God's design and demands and therefore not showing as we understand the church is to display the excellencies, the praises of Him who has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And because we're not following God's design and God's demand. It may be that in some arenas we're we're being mocked. We're seen as a moral history lesson. So what, what does that mean for you and I? Well, what I'd like to do this morning is to parallel the Jewish temple and, uh, with us as individual followers of Christ and collectively the body of Christ. I hope you're a note taker because 90%, this is a very humbling thing, that 90% of what you hear me say this morning you're going to forget when you walk out of those doors. So you might just take some notes down. I have, imagine that I have three points at which we're going to look based on this text and just write down the points, maybe write down what the Holy Spirit is impressing upon you and maybe even later today. Tonight, go and evaluate and examine, return to that what the Holy Spirit said to you. So here we're going to parallel again the Old Testament temple in Jerusalem with us as temples of the Holy Spirit. Here's the first truth. I kind of gave it away. Here it is. You are now the sanctuary. You are now the sanctuary. What is a sanctuary? Well, it's a sacred or a holy place. Many times a sanctuary 
You see, this is a wildlife refuge or a sanctuary. What does that mean? It's a safe place. But sometimes people will refer to a building like this as the sanctuary. This is not the sanctuary. It may be a sanctuary. Sometimes people even refer to a building like this as the house of the Lord. This is not the house of the Lord. You are the house of the Lord. You are now a sanctuary of the Most High. You are a temple. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, you don't need this history lesson, but just to give us some context. Remember, when the temple was built, in the innermost area there was a sacred place called the Holy of Holies, a perfect cubed room in which sat the, the Ark of the Covenant. Remember the Ark of the Covenant, that precious piece of furniture that represented the presence of God among His people. And this, this Ark of the Covenant was placed in this Holy of Holies and was separated by a curtain or a veil. Here's what's interesting and amazing, that only one time a year, the high priest would go in to the Holy of Holies, through that veil, through that drape, through that curtain, and he would offer, he would sprinkle the blood of a spotless, unblemished lamb on that mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, where God would forgive not only the high priest's sins for another year, but God's people for another year. So year after year, that's what they did. The high priest would go through that veil that separated the presence of God from all humanity. But then when Jesus was suspended between heaven and earth and he breathed his last, do you remember what happened to that veil that separated the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies, that sacred room from all of humanity? It was torn in two, not from the bottom up like you and I might do it, but from the top down, signifying that now there is no need for a mediator between us and God. The Bible says that Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. Not only that, 50 days after that, when Pentecost finally came, fully came, it says that believers were filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Imagine that. People now are being filled with the presence of God. The, the, the apostle Paul, uh, Paul even says that you are now a temple of the Holy Spirit. You see this in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 uh, on the screen. Look at this. He says, don't you know, this is an amazing truth. Don't you know that your body, and don't, don't, don't generalize this for somebody else. Apply to your own life, your own body. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. And just as the temple in Jerusalem showed forth the presence and the glory and the majesty, the holiness of God, now you and I as temples of the Holy Spirit have the presence of God residing in us. The great mystery, God in us. And what should be our response to that? I mean, those of us who've been Christ followers for a long time sometimes take it for granted or... Maybe we don't, we're not am still amazed by God's grace. But what, is, what should our response be to that? Not only when we got, made, when we were made right with God, but even now. I think it should be the same response that the people had when the glory of God descended upon this structure, this temple in Jerusalem. Look at this, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 1 and 3. Look at this on the screen. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer of dedication, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. What must have that looked like? When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they started dancing. Now, is that what you see? 
What does it say? They bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let us be reminded this morning, Calvary Hill family, those who have confessed Jesus Christ, those who have been baptized and sealed forever by the Holy Spirit, let us rejoice in the fact that God has redeemed and reconciled us back to himself. May we be humbled and constantly give thanks for that truth. So here it is. Number one, you are a sanctuary. You are now the house of the Lord. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. The second truth is this. You are to be sanctified. Now I know some of you who've been around for a while, you've heard this a number of times. I'm praying that this might be fresh to you, to understand that you now as a temple of the Holy Spirit are to be sanctified. What does sanctified mean? It, mean, it means to be made holy. It means to be set apart for the purposes of God. It means to be purified from sin. That's what the temple was supposed to be. A place that was set apart for the purpose of, purposes of God, for worship and for sacrifice. I was reading recently through the Old Testament book of Ezekiel in my quiet time and came across this passage that I thought was so fitting to this concept. Look at this on the screen. It's Ezekiel 43, verse 12. He said, and this is the basic law of the temple, absolute holiness. And this is when they were getting ready to restore the temple. This is the law of the temple, absolute holiness. The entire top of the mountain where the temple is built is holy. Yes, this is the basic law of the temple. So look at what God told Solomon after his glory filled and fell upon the temple. Look at this in 2 Chronicles 7, 16. For now I have chosen and consecrated, set apart, sanctified this house, that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. I want you to think about that verse in light of who you are as a temple of the Holy Spirit. That God is sanctifying and consecrating you that his name might be in you forever. And that his eyes and his heart will be in you, on you for all time. The word consecrated is synonymous with the word sanctified. Look at the definition for consecrated. It means to make or declare sacred, to set apart or dedicate to the service of a deity. So the, the temple in Jerusalem was set apart to be for, for worship and sacrifice. But when Hezekiah took the throne... Roughly 250 years later, it was anything but sanctified and consecrated. We read this a few minutes ago in the introduction, but look at verses 6 and 7 again. He says, For our ancestors were unfaithful and did what is evil in the sight of the Lord our God. They abandoned Him, turned their faces away from the Lord's dwelling place, and turned their backs on Him. They also closed the doors of the portico, extinguished the lamps, did not burn incense, and did not offer burnt offerings in the holy place of the God of Israel. What happened? God's people had basically forsaken all acts of worship, and the temple had been deserted and locked up. This unbelievable edifice that represented the very presence of God in their midst, it says they had turned their backs on that and on Him had forsaken him. So what does Hezekiah do? He takes measures to reconsecrate the temple. Look at verses 3 and 5 of 2 Chronicles 29. 
in the first year of his reign, in the very first month, he wasn't wasting any time. He opened the doors of the Lord's temple and repaired them. And he said to them, hear me, Levites, the Levites were the caretakers of the temple. Consecrate yourselves now and consecrate the temple of the Lord, the God of your ancestors. Remove everything impure from the holy place. So Hezekiah gets the Levites busy of reconsecrating the temple. So look at what they did, verses 15 and 16. They gathered their brothers together, consecrated themselves, and went according to the king's command by the words of the Lord to cleanse the Lord's temple. The priest went to the entrance of the Lord's temple to cleanse it. They took all the unclean things they found in the Lord's sanctuary to the courtyard of the Lord's temple. Then the Levites received those things and took them outside to the Kidron Valley, which is right outside of the temple mount there in Jerusalem. So you have the priests, the mediators between God and man. You have the Levites who are the keeper, the caretakers of the temple. Now they're taking measures to cleanse the temple. Again, Eugene Peterson paraphrases these verses. Look at this on the, the screen. They emptied the place of the accumulation of defiling junk, pagan rubbish that had no business in that holy place, and the Levites hauled it off to the Kidron Valley. And then in verse 17, we, won't, we, can, we can bypass it, but it, it, it took them 16 days. It says that it took them eight days to go from kind of the, the innermost part of the temple to the outside, and then another eight days to do some further cleansing. What does that mean for you and I? Well, just as the temple in Jerusalem was to be sanctified and consecrated for the purposes of God, you, as a temple of the Lord, are to be sanctified, growing in holiness, set apart for the purposes of God. By the way, this is not an option. If you are here this morning and you confess Jesus Christ as Lord and you've been subsequently have been baptized and sealed by the Holy Spirit, your spiritual DNA is crying out for you to be conformed or transformed into the image of Christ. And so being sanctified is no option for a Christ follower. This is not my words. This is what the Apostle Paul told the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Look at this. For this, people want to know the will of God. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Specifically, he says, abstaining from sexual immorality. Here's what's interesting about that word sanctify is that the Apostle Paul is using a word that was used in the Greco-Roman world of, of Olympic athletes. Look at this definition on the screen. The word sanctify, it meant to set yourself apart like an Olympic runner. Don't you know that everything that an Olympic runner or an athlete did was geared toward the Olympics? You think of every four years even now that people, that men and women in their young teens are preparing for that moment in time in the Olympics to hope to compete and then to compete and their whole life is geared toward that one effort. Tim Keller says this about this concept using the word sanctify like an Olympic, like a training for, uh, for Olympic runner training. Look at this on the screen. We know what it means to train for the Olympics. It means that absolutely everything in life is subordinated to one goal. It means that every minute of the day, every activity is done in such a way as to contribute to that aim. There's a great deal of pain every day, but it is endured without complaint. 
Only that level of passion and commitment can earn the goal. So notice this, hear me. When you are to be sanctified, everything in your life is geared toward that purpose. To be consecrated and set apart for the purposes of God. What you read, how you spend your money, what you do with your time, what you do with your spare time, every amount of energy, everything you do is all geared toward you being sanctified for the glory of God, for the purposes of God. And just as in verse 5, the Levites and priests, they were to carry out the filth from the holy place, they started from the inside. I think that's what we need to do as Christ followers, is that we need to start from the very inside. Quit trying to dress up our sin. That's what Jesus accused the, the Pharisees of doing, that religious element in his day that wanted to look righteously on the outside. He said, you're nothing but whitewashed tombs. You stink on the inside, even though everything on the outside may look good. And just so you'll know, I mean, I've been guilty of that many seasons of ministry life, trying to paint up the outside while the inside is just full of junk and filth. That's why we look at loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The, the writer of Proverbs says in Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart. Why? Because it affects everything you do, and that is where Jesus reigns in you, your heart, the center of who you are. Can we try to clean, try to clean up the outside when we ought to go to the, literally the heart of the issue and start hauling stuff off to be burned? Some of you may be wondering why there's no passion for God. Again, not that you have to get up and dance through the time of worship, but you know. You know there's no real, I mean, I, let me ask you this. Is your passion, excitement for the things of God and wanting to be sanctified equally as passionate for your desire for the Dallas Cowboys to have a winning season? Or for the Baylor, I'm a Baylor a University grad of the Baylor Bears to win the Big 12. You go on and on and on. Do you manifest, experience, have the same passion for God that you do for all these other things? There's no joy of salvation not experiencing the manifold blessings of God. It could be because your temple is defiled and polluted and you just filled it up with all this filth that nobody, maybe nobody can see but you know. You shut the door of your temple to God by not letting Him have access to every part of your life. When it says they quit burning incense, what do we know that to be? We know that is the prayers of the saints. So you stop praying. You stop abiding in Christ. The very reason that you were created and saved was to have union with the God Almighty. So you quit burning it, you quit praying. You extinguish the lamps is what they did in the temple, and that represents what's stifling the Holy Spirit's activity in your life. And so when you come to a service like this, or week after week, or you hear something on the, on the radio, if anybody ever listens to the radio again, or whatever medium through which you hear God speak to you, what do you do? You just shove it down. You stifle it, because, and the Holy Spirit is trying to get your attention to say, hey, because that's the role of the Holy Spirit to convict, to illumine areas in our, in, in our life that aren't being totally sanctified to Him. And what do you do? You extinguish the lamps. You suppress it. When the Holy Spirit says, hey, I want to give you another opportunity. 
So you quit offering yourself, they quit offering sacrifices, and so you quit offering yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Is it any wonder that you're not seeing the activity of God in your life? We sang a few minutes ago, God is a way maker. Are you seeing God make a way in your life as you yield to Him? You are to be sanctified, consecrated, as a, as a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now you are set apart for the purposes of God. And people ought to look at you and see that there's something unique in your life. That's what the word holy means, is that you're different. That you respond to situations that work in a different way, things in the, in the political realm. So are you, uh, we, sometimes we mistake holiness being distant, but holiness means you're different, not distant. I mean, how else are we to affect a darkened world unless we as light of the world penetrate that darkness. So you're a temple of the Holy Spirit to be sanctified and clean before the Lord. And thirdly, here it is. By the way, the, uh, we'll get to that third point. I, you know, it's interesting that when Joshua finally takes over the reins from Moses and leads God's people into the, the promised land at the end of the book of Joshua, as they're still taking over some of that promised land, God tells his people as they enter the season of the judges after the book of Joshua, he says to do primarily two things, two things. And you would think that all that they have to do entering to the promised land, there were more than that, but basically two things. <laughs> Number one, tear down all of the idols because you're entering a pagan territory to where you will see physical, literal idols being built up and worshiped instead of the God of the universe. So, tear down the idols. The second thing was what? To drive out the inhabitants. Those pagan inhabitants. Because <clears throat> God knew, He told them, He said, if you don't, they're going to become a snare to you. They're going to latch on to you. And so if you read the first two chapters of the book of Judges, you will see these tribes mentioned. They did not. They did not. They did not. They did not drive out the inhabitants of the land. And what happened? They began to intermarry. They began to embrace those inhabitants and worship those idols. And I think about in our lives, and when God says, hey, when you're coming into this new frontier, this new season, this new life that I've given you, tear down all of the idols and drive out all the inhabitants. And you think, well, I'll just maybe cover the, the, uh, the idols for a while so they don't get my attention or my affection or my allegiance, and I'll, I'll just kind of put aside the inhabitants. But you and I both know that over time, we begin to embrace the very things that we should have demolished and run out. And we find ourselves not sanctified, but looking just like the world. Let me say this. I'll say this probably in the last point. Because you were created to know God, to love God, to serve Him, to worship Him, you are only truly fulfilled when you are fulfilling the purpose for which you were created. Go ask the master designer, okay, for what purpose have you designed me? And hear me, people are dying to know that their life matters and that it has purpose. That's why Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life, is the number one best-selling book. Uh, you know, I've been translated in multiple languages. Most translated book other than the Bible. Why? Because people want to know that their life has purpose. And Rick Warren says in the very first, I've never read the book, but the very first line says, your life is not about you. And you have people flirting and and, and flitting from one team, one hobby, one job, one relationship to another, thinking that that will bring fulfillment. 
and they live decades not being fulfilled. Why? Because you're only fulfilled when you are fulfilling the purpose for which you were created. To know, to love, to serve, to worship, to share the God of the universe. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. The God of the universe dwells inside of you, and because of that, you are to be consecrated and sanctified to the Lord. So tear down the idols. Whatever that is that is lurking in the corner of your house or your computer or your job, tear it down, and then whatever inhabitant you're tempted to embrace, drive it out fully. Thirdly, you're not only a sanctuary, you're to be sanctified. Thirdly, you can be restored to service. The very thing for which you are created to serve after they cleanse the temple, you can read, in, we're not going to read it now, but in verses 20 through 35, sacrifices and celebrations ensued. They were kind of getting some momentum and said, this is for what the temple was created. Now let's celebrate. Look at just some of what took place in verses 28 through 30. The whole assembly, again, this is after they consecrated the temple. The whole assembly worshiped and the singers sang and the trumpeters sounded. All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. And when the offering was finished, the king and all who were present with him bowed themselves and worshipped. And they sang praises with gladness. And they bowed down and worshipped. So this celebration ensued when they consecrated the temple. But notice the latter part of verse 35. Look at this on the screen or in your Bible. So the service of the Lord's temple was established. The service of the Lord's temple was established. The first time I remember reading this where it struck me, I was reading it in my quiet time from the New Living Translation where it says, so the temple of the Lord was restored to service. The temple of the Lord for which it was created was restored to service. That's what some of you desperately want. And what some of you desperately need to be restored to serve the King of Kings, the very thing for which you were created. We have three sons. Our oldest son is 32. He served in the Navy for seven years now. He's back living with us, going to school, trying to figure out life. Loves the Lord, involved in a great church there in the Keller area. Our middle son is married. He's a worship pastor in Nashville, Tennessee. They're expecting their first a girl, first baby in December. Our youngest son is a student pastor in northwest Arkansas. Married, has a three-year-old son, expecting another son in mid-February. And this verse is what I begged them to memorize. And knowing that all three of them would honor the Lord, hopefully honor the Lord and serve Him. Serve him. This, this is kind of a theme verse for not only me, but something for which I pray for our sons and pastors that I know on a regular basis. Look at this, 2 Timothy 2, 20-21. James, you know this. Neil. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. So you have your everyday dishes. Then you have those that are china. I don't know when anybody ever uses their china, but we've had china for 35, 34 years of our married life and may have used it a dozen times. But Paul is saying there is, <clears throat> there in your house, there's this everyday furniture and then this china. Some for honorable, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself, sanctifies himself, consecrates himself from what is dishonorable, unholy, he or she will be a vessel for honorable use, 
set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. This is what I continually harp to our sons. God uses clean vessels. He does. You see that all through Scripture. God uses clean vessels. And some of you this morning, you have been boarded up. Now, you wouldn't necessarily confess that, but you've been boarded up and you're lifeless when it comes to your walk with Christ or being a temple of the Holy Spirit. But God wants to restore you to service. Don't know what that looks like for you, but God has given every one of you a place to serve in the body of Christ and in the kingdom at large. It's like when God had that confrontation or that discussion with Moses when Moses, after 40 years on the backside of a desert, God said, I'm going to use you, Moses, to come and lead my people out from bondage. And Moses was arguing with God. Well, I'm a, I have a speech impediment. And God said, well, who made your mouth, Moses? If I'm going to give you a speaking assignment, don't you think I can equip you to do that? Of course, Moses kept... And that's what I would ask you. What is, if God has given you an assignment, why are you arguing with the God who created you? Here's what I've known in three different stewardships of ministry, in a uh, Christian concert ministry, in pastoring, and with the convention. God always equips to where He calls. Finally, God had this exasperation with Moses, and Moses said, well, who, who, who am I going to tell him sent me? And God said to Moses, what's in your hand, Moses? Remember what was in Moses' hand? It was a shepherd's staff. Why? Because Moses was a shepherd. That's what he'd done for 40 years. And God said, throw it down. Threw it down and became a snake. He picked it back up. And it was that staff, that shepherd's staff, that God used to institute the ten plagues, to part the Red Sea, to draw water from a rock, to defeat the enemy. And in the latter part of Exodus chapter 4, it said that staff became the rod of God. Just a piece of stick now was infused with the power of God. And so you were created to serve in whatever capacity God has wired you. It's going to look totally different from the way I serve. But I want to ask you this morning, what's in your hand? In what ways has God gifted you? Because in Ephesians 2.10 it says you are God's masterpiece. You are individually, uniquely created for good works. So you were created to serve, and here's, here's the good news today, is that you can be restored to service as you go back into your temple and start doing some removing of that filth that has infiltrated your life and your heart. Some of you, it may, you may be to the point you think God could never use you again. Well, here, if you're not dead, you're not done. Remember earlier in chapter 29, Hezekiah told them that some of their forefathers who neglected the temple, they were in captivity or they were dead. And here's what I've discovered as being in ministry for 40 years, a pastor for 25 years. When you're not being sanctified or serving the Lord through worship and ministry, you're putting yourself in bondage. And you're rotting on the inside. Hezekiah said, some, because the fathers have the ancestors to sin, their families have been taken away in captivity. And hear me, Dad, you think that um, you're sailing alone, you think you're going through your Christian life alone, everything you do affects your family. And we've seen studies that show that teenagers, when they graduate high school and leave their home, they depart from the church because they never, generally speaking, they've never seen the Christ life 
authentic, authentically manifested in their home. All oh, their parents were religious. They did a lot of things for the church, but they didn't actively pursue Christ. So dad, just, just so you'll know, it may be that your family is held captive by your disobedience to serve the Lord. So go back and look at the purpose of the Levites in accordance with the temple in Jerusalem. Verse 11, my sons, don't be negligent now for the Lord has chosen you to stand in his presence to serve him, to be his ministers and burners of incense. Not going to go into all of those, but those things that were designed for the Levites and priests now is open to every Christ follower. It's called the priesthood of the believer. You and I now have access to God through what Christ did 2,000 years ago. This is what God has called each of us to do in these areas. Again, I, when I was in, in San Angelo, there was a lady, our, one of our dear friends' mother used to call me the minister. Well, there, this is our minister. He's the minister. Here, here, you're all ministers. You're all ministers to minister God's grace to those who are in need. And it could be that, remember in verse 3, Hezekiah opened the doors of the house of the Lord so that the priests and Levites could get busy about removing that, that filth. I think of the plea that Jesus made. Remember in Revelation, when Jesus is writing a letter to the seven churches, one church and specifically Laodicea, he said, I wish that you were hot or I wish that you were cold, but because you are lukewarm, I'm going to what? I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. What Jesus is saying is that you're useless. Nobody wants lukewarm coffee or lukewarm Coke. Amen? Amen. So when I, I like my coffee piping hot. And so if I'm tasting lukewarm coffee, I won't spit it out of my mouth, but I won't enjoy it. And Jesus is saying to the Laodicean Christians, you're, you're useless. And he said, in, 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 in closing that letter, to the church, he said in verse 20, behold, I think it's on the screen, look at this, verse 20. This is a verse that has been used historically as an invitation to salvation, but Jesus is addressing a church of followers of Christ. And he said, see, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And I just wonder this morning, have you shut the doors of your heart where you hear Jesus knocking and saying, if you'll just open, I'm going to come in and we're going to have a dinner together. We're going to enjoy life together. Interestingly, on the heels of this revival in Jerusalem, in all of Judah, after they kept the, 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 um, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and experienced things that they hadn't experienced since the time of Solomon. It said they left that area, began to go tear down idols, and the contributions to the temple went up. You know, the reason, one of the reasons, I, I believe this is something about which I'm so passionate because this is so fresh to me. I recently went through a restoration process, if you will, that I had tried to find my identity in working for the Southern Baptist of Texas Convention rather than my identity in Christ. And all of a sudden my heart and my mind were filled with doubts and fears and anxieties and frustrations and all the things that you can imagine. 
Now, I wasn't trusting God and fully letting him lead because there's no doubt in my mind that God had called me from Yorktown to work for the SBTC. But somehow I had shut the doors of my heart and my mind to God's activity in my life. And it was a time of brokenness, of confession, of repentance, to where I realized once again that maybe I looked good on the outside, but the inside was just full of all this filth. It's not a good place to be. Some of you know that. It's not a good place to be. It could be that your temple is in a mess and you need to go to the very heart of the matter and do business with God. Just to say as the psalmist said, God, search me. Know my thoughts, know my... What evil way is there in me and lead me in the way everlasting? And you would, you would think that after this revival, that God would just continue to protect Jerusalem and Judah. But look at what we read as we wrap this up. Look at verse 1 in chapter 32. After Hezekiah's faithful deeds, the enemy, King Sennacherib of Assyria, came and entered Judah. He laid siege to the fortified cities and intended to break into them. You would think that it would say after Hezekiah's faithful deeds, they experienced, they lived happily ever after. But see, there's an enemy that wants to destroy you. And it may be that you go through a cleansing process. It may take several days, 16 days, like it took the Levites and the priests to clean up the temple. After that, you think it's going to be smooth sailing. Wake up. You're in a spiritual battle. Every day, again, you have an enemy that wants to destroy you, and he lies, and he accuses, and he deceives. He wants to get you off track. So just if, if the Lord is stirring you up today, and it, like when I experienced that restoration process, it was as if the next day or week, there was this huge assault of the enemy on me. And I recognized it for what it was. I have an enemy who wants to destroy me. And he lies and he deceives and he accuses. So what am I saying? Let's not put all of our hope as a church simply in our gathering together again. There is value in that. It's biblical, it's helpful, but realize that you are a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit. You are to be sanctified and you are to serve. As I wrap it up, here's a diagnostic question that I presented to our Yorktown family as we were getting ready to go engage in gospel conversations. Would you wish your life in Christ on anybody else? Would you wish what God, you, you couldn't wait to share what God is doing in your life. Would you wish your life in Christ on anybody else? If not, then probably you need a restoration. 